The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. Discussing the politics of the new European populism, Pella Neuroth-Taylor, on today's News Talk, TNT. Yes, hello. Today's show is about empire and about commonwealth and about some other things. We've got, this is an Australian channel, and we've got a British interviewee, and then we've got a South African interviewee. And let me start by saying that I was down in uh, South Africa recently, and um, my current residence in Sweden, which is a country in Europe which sees itself closest to Britain culturally, um, they watch Monty Python and, and laugh at John Cleese's bad films, even the bad films. And he has his final tours in Sweden, and he goes to small towns, and they all understand his idiomatic English without a problem. Um, but actually, when I went down to South Africa, I recognized a culture that was much closer to the British one than the Swedish was close to the British one. I mean, Sweden is really part of the North European cultural sphere, Germanic sphere, it's an unfashionable word to say, but so close to Holland and, and Denmark and North Germany, because Britain really does march to a, a different beat, um, drum beat. And what I recognize in South Africa, I mean, London, uh, Johannesburg looks a bit like London with sunshine, similar constructions uh, and architecture. And I recognize the condiments on the table and an English breakfast and the same old tatty Dick Francis novels in the uh, Airbnbs. And I found out a lot in common with people if I if I stuck to British topics. Of course, cricket and, and rugby were, were mainstays of conversation. And that brings us to the, the next the topic of empire, because I think that um, in the mainstream liberal media, uh, Donald Trump is often spoken of as uh, an American nationalist or an, at best, but at worst, he's some kind of lunatic. Uh, and I think that what I see Trump as is a kind of American nationalist against the imperial power in Washington, which sort of took over in the world after the British Empire. And I think that the British Empire hasn't quite disappeared. Um, it's sort of subsumed itself into the American Empire. I mean, it's hard to see who's in the driving seat. Some people say it's London, the city of London. Some people focus on financial affairs, talk about. Others think that uh, the British, the, the London Whitehall lobby is quite powerful in, in America. And um, it makes sense, really, that um, if you want to have influence in the world. It makes sense to to align yourself or to sort of try and influence the great power in the world, Washington. I mean, we have other lobbies, I, I need not mention them, doing their best to sort of subordinate the congressmen and, and American power. And and when, when Trump talks about the swamp, he's really, as I see it, speaking for the American common man who's a bit fed up with empire and wants to focus on, on the home front. And... Um, if you'll remember, I mean, uh, we've had heard so much about the special relationship that we forget that uh, the alliance between Britain and America is quite a recent thing. I mean, it's, it's been quite shaky in recent years, but before the Second World War, and certainly before the First World War, uh, although America had a British culture influenced by, by German culture and so on, it was um, in foreign policy often at loggerheads with Britain and the countries were two very competitive rivals. And we mustn't forget that the American founding belief, credo, was in opposition to, to the Britain and, and royalty and empire and, and had a, a kind of rugged individualism that was fed up with the corruption, the geopolitical corruption of Europe. 
So I see a Trump in that tr tradition. But just generalizing to empires generally, I think that we can talk about whether empires are good or bad. I mean, there are some people who say they're, they're good, they spread light, they enable trade, um, they, they are a vehicle for ideas, and they move people around for better or for worse, uh, which means meeting of minds. I mean, what did, was the Roman Empire a good or a bad thing? Was the British Empire a good or a bad thing? And we can talk about that um, with our next guest, who is very interesting, a very interesting mind and hugely encyclopedic knowledge of empires. And I think that has, I think has twigged a little bit about the, the imperial dilemma that Britain uh, hasn't really, in my mind, entered into, uh, the discussion entered into with, uh, with Brexit, because I saw, I saw Brexit as a sort of a rejection, not only of the of the European empire based in Brussels, but in a way, although it was never spoken of, maybe this sort of global empire based in Washington and London. But I think that because the elites in Britain didn't grasp that nettle, uh, they couldn't, um, it, it, was, it was kind of a skewed discussion. Um, and this brings us to the last topic, which is sort of related to empire. And if we have time, we'll talk about it. I mean, Australia um, narrowly avoided becoming a republic, I think, was it 10 or 15 or 20 years ago in, in a vote? And the um, I think with the coronation of Charles III, the, the debate may rise again. I don't, I'm not that closely following it. But um, the where I'm based in Scandinavia, the big story of the moment is the coronation yesterday of the Danish king, uh, Frederick X, I think it is, in a rather low-key event, rather stylish. And of course, the the new queen consort of or queen of uh, Denmark is uh, an Australian, Mary Donaldson from Tasmania. So maybe the Australians have followed this a bit, and she speaks uh, Danish just like a native, as far as I could tell. Um, so that raises the question I'd like to talk a little bit about: is whether the the so-called bicycling monarchies of Scandinavia um, could be a model for Britain now that Britain's had a recent uh, change of monarch. So that brings us to our first guest. Councillor Paul Marks. This is TNT Radio. It's the stuff. It's that division people are talking about. And that cluelessness that they want to push. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Paul. Um, nice. we, we were going to start off with rather abstruse, but to me, incredibly interesting question, which sparked off our online debate. Um, we'll get to all the other topics momentarily, but why... Do academics like the Ottoman Empire and wish it had more power in Europe? What's your starting point on our discussion on empire there? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my speculation is, of course, it's only speculation. I can't see into their souls. Is it is not really the reason they give, which is religious toleration. Um, I don't think they're particularly interested in religion or toleration. I suspect that deep down what they like is the unlimited government. Right. If you're dealing with something like the Habsburg monarchy, every Habsburg emperor had to be careful not to offend powerful feudal landowners or landholders. In the Ottoman Empire, well, if the ruler wanted to strangle you and take your stuff, you got strangled and your stuff got taken. I think that's what attracts them. And, of course, that is a deeply cynical view, but then I'm a middle-aged man. 
you're not worried about these. Have you got a comment on views on Islam versus Christianity there? Because obviously that would have been. I don't think modern academics believe in Islam any more than they believe in Christianity. Um, I think that the vast majority of academics, if not broadly Marxist, are left-wing, semi-atheist, not caring. Um, As long as they have a government, which, of course, as George Orwell said, when someone says under socialism, he always assumes that he'll be on top of socialism and everyone else will be underneath it. Um, So I think in their heart of hearts, each academic thinks he's Plato, or at least so many of them do, thinks he's the philosopher king, the gold guardian, and will be ordering everyone about. He thinks of himself as, if not the sultan, then the sultan's grand vizier, who will be advising the sultan. I don't think it's anything to do with religion. I don't think they care about religion. Would you, I mean, um, by the 20th century, I think the Habsburg Empire, it was basically Austria, Hungary, and and the Balkan states. Um, Although it produced many brilliant geniuses, people like, uh, you know, Freud and... uh, uh, Wittgenstein and uh, Karl Popper and um, whatever. I mean, a lot of these artists and, and philosophers, I remember I did philosophy at uh, university in the UK and practically all our philosophers were Austrian and born within a few kilometers of each other in Vienna. You know, it's amazing. So it was a stimulating environment for 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 brilliant thought because people came from all over the empire, whether they were Jews or Belarusians or, or Poles or Croatians and Austrians, German-speaking Austrians, melting pot. Vienna became the capital of the 20th century, some people say, you know, and all that. But the Habsburg Empire came in for a lot of criticism, but you're sort of extolling it. You're saying it was a good place to be. Well, I mean, you're talking about two different empires almost. I mean, the the empire of, let's say, 1683 or 15, 26, 27, it's a very different place from 1914. In the... 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, the Habsburg Empire became famous for bureaucracy. This is where the novels of Kafka come from. And also what we talk about red tape. Red tape was a literal thing. It actually existed. And there were whole sorts of different colors of tape which you put around these documents to indicate, is this an imperial matter? Is this a kingdom of Hungary matter? Is this something else? So it became very bureaucratic possibly the most bureaucratic state in Europe, um, with the possible exception of the Russian Empire. And in terms of philosophy, it's a very different thing because they were a bit more open-minded in Prussia and then Germany. There was this view that Aristotle and everything Aristotelian was out of date. And basically, if it isn't Kant, if it isn't Hegel, then it's old-fashioned and silly and we can ignore it. Um, possibly because of their Catholicism, the, the Habsburg Empire was a bit more tolerant of thinkers before Kant and Hegel and a bit more open-minded to things like objective reality. But you're sort of extolling the, the, the early... Uh, you, you make it sound as if the early Habsburg Empire was a sort of libertarian paradise of minimal government. Oh, no. No. Only if you compare it, if you compare the Habsburg Empire to the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire was far more 
um, statist, if you want to use that ugly word. But the Habsburg Empire was hardly libertarian. I mean, for example, it had serfdom in wide areas. Not always. You can't. You can't. Not everywhere. You can't generalize. Um, and also, of course, wars mean high taxes. And it was perpetually at war in the Balkans, or almost perpetually at war. In terms of religious toleration, of course, it depends again where you go and who you're talking about. Uh, Mary Teresa was, in the 18th century, was fairly tolerant if you were a Christian. Joseph was fairly tolerant even if you weren't a Christian. So it depends when, where you're talking about. As with any empire, generalizing is incredibly dangerous. You generalize. Okay. So I'm about to make a big generalization. So you, your only generalization okay. is that you can't generalize about empires, which going back to my, my starting speech there. Some empires were good and some empires were bad, or some empires were good in some aspects, and but bad in some aspects. The so are you able to... Right. So let's say let's take the British Empire, um, which Australians are <laughs> very interested in. Um, what were the good parts of the British Empire? I think if you're talking about the 19th century, the struggle against slavery, um, human sacrifice, intertribal war. When you're talking about, let's say, someone like Lugard in Africa, although he was in Asia as well, he was in Hong Kong at some point. Um, earlier, you're talking about someone like Raffles, the founder of Singapore, who opposed both pirates and also headhunters. It's not fashionable to talk about these people, but they existed. Um, but of course, then we go on to the dark side, which very much existed as well. The um, dark side would be things like the East India Company in the 18th century. I mean, Edmund Burke spent decades of his life denouncing that, and for very good reasons particularly its policies, let's say, in Bengal, uh, where you have this idea, well, we'll take all the land, we use a lot of it to grow opium, or make the people there grow opium, we'll sell the opium to China. Admittedly, there are other people trying to sell opium to China, including high Chinese officials, leave that aside for a minute. And, oh, there's a food shortage in Bengal. Well, that's very sad. I wonder how that happened. If you're using How a lot of land to grow open, you're going to have a food shortage. Yeah, right. How is the British Empire taught in the UK today? I'm not up to speed on those things. but um... Well, alas, as you can see from my um, hideous appearance, I haven't been to school for a very, very long time. From what I'm told, it's um, taught in a thoroughly negative way, both at school, university, um, and in museums our galleries, that's on. The evil is exaggerated and the good left out. Mm. That's the short of it. Well, after the break, we'll just talk about, because well, I want to talk about the globalist empire. I mean, it's the topic on everybody's, they call it by different things. Um, the, Davos. The, some of the people on Davos, man, WEF, um, British. Some people think it's a British influence thing. Uh, the, living on something is American. Some people call it globalism. You can't agree what it is. Just bluntly, the American empire. But it, almost in every sort of alternative media, it's it's the topic of the day. So, what I like to talk to you after the break is the similarities, the good and bad sides. Uh, and uh, but we'll talk about that after the break. This is TNT Radio. 
TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me, and I was trying to figure it out, and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old. And it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. TNTradio.live. Online. Online. Online streaming. Be a part of the conversation. I stream it all at work, and I stream it to my phone and listen to it wherever I go. TNT. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking uh, about empire with uh, Paul Marx. Tell us, did you, were you... Where did you stand on Brexit? Just yes, a quick one. I was answer. a firm supporter of independence. Right. Doesn't Can I just to stop say you? I think the. Mm-hmm. But what I was, thought was missing in the Brexit debate was that there, it was all talk about independence from Europe and more German Empire or whatever. Fine. I mean, but there was no talk about independence from the globalist empire. And I would divide. I mean, you've got globalism, which is this London-New York axis, which is financial, very, very common culture, where where the news is run by Reuters and AP and a few TV channels, where advertising is run by transatlantic companies, where TV shows, TV talk shows exchange journalists, a lot of British journalists working in New York. And they're kind of setting the conversation for the whole world with their transgender issues, for instance, which normal people feel totally mystified with. And I think from a European perspective, I mean, I know that the bureaucracy can had its tentacles into to British life, but 
from a cultural point of view, I mean, I remember visiting France quite a lot in the 1980s and Germany. Those countries have become more Anglo than than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, they've even imported a lot of the, even, for, even France, that acme of independence. So there's a failure to see the other perspective. I mean, a, a lot of thinking Europeans feel that they're oppressed by the Anglos, rather than, whereas the British debate was only how we're oppressed by Brussels. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, why that Brexit com conversation was absent in the Brexit debate? Well, I think there's two separate, that? my apologies. I, I think there's two separate points there, though they are connected. There is this financial access of London, New York, but let's not forget Tokyo and Frankfurt. And that is, I'll be blunt, a gigantic credit bubble. And as our, as the fellow media person Tim Poole often puts out in the United States, when they started to protest about that with Occupy Wall Street, which was a mixture of people, both the left and the right, so-called, then suddenly people wanted to change the subject. Let's not talk about the fact the money's based on nothing and we can just create it from thin air. Uh, let's talk about race um, or gayness or transsexuality. And he physically reports, because he was there, the people who they didn't know suddenly turned up to these protests and changed the subject. Because, of course, the last currency that had any link to objective reality was the Swiss franc, and that link was broken, what, January the 1st, 2000, so 24 years ago. So this cultural imperialism is partly to distract attention from this financial mess, but it's also a massive academic fashion. I mean, these people go to university, they get filled with these ideas, and they don't suddenly stop believing them when they become executives at BlackRock or State Street or Vanguard, even when up to the board level. Some of them may genuinely believe this stuff. You know, we can't be too cynical. But there is an element of, oh, let's distract attention. As for the independence debate in 2016, what I found very strange was that someone could make it very obvious that they didn't like it, didn't like the British. And President Barack Obama made it pretty clear that he didn't like us. And yet the British would continue to like him. And he would say, don't vote for Brexit, more or less what he said. And then we went out and voted for it. But it's almost as if most people didn't notice that he'd said we shouldn't. So we all liked him because we had to, I think. Um, that was sort of compulsory. But that doesn't mean to say we did what he asked us to do or even acknowledged that he'd asked us to do it. So that's quite a subtle and weird thing, which I'm not sure I can explain. And you'd say that I get your point. I mean, very interesting that I, I've always thought that 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 that, um, that the powers that be are looking for cultural distractions um, to to sort of look here, look there, and don't look here. Tiny way, yeah. Um, and I think, but would you classify Barack Obama as a globalist? Then I mean, and what do you think about my point that Trump is a, is a nationalist, and that's why he's an he's anti-American empire. He's a small. So, he's a He's a, I mean, Donald John Trump or GDHT, he's a, a small N nationalist. 
And on his policies on trade, for example, it's you know, very reminiscent of Republicans in the 19th century or early 20th century. And of course, he went to Wharton Business School, which was founded, surprise, by Mr. Wharton, a 19th century Republican who also believed in protective tariffs. So you could say there's continuity, massive continuity there. I don't think Trump is against all conflict. He's not a pacifist, but he asks awkward questions like, when are we going to win this war? And since the 1960s, and some of us can remember, um, that's been a forbidden question. You know, Robert McNamara, you know, victory is an outdated concept. So we just carry on with the war until there's this political settlement, which turns out to mean defeat. Um, so it's very strange. He asks awkward questions. When are we going to win the war? What's the war for? And if you can't okay. answer him, then he's against. And they I mean, don't seems to. I don't know if it's because America is a very big country, but it seems that you can say I'm anti-Washington and you can still like Tucker Carlson, for instance. I mean, um, he says, I'm American. I can say what I want. And then he's very anti-Washington and everyone is a lot of people are anti-Washington and that's OK. But both Britain and America underwent these kind of big revolts in 2016, won the election of Trump and the election of Brexit. But Brexit doesn't seem to have it's I, I'm trying to find my way around this subject because um, I'm dissatisfied by what's happened in Britain. I mean, there's a, there's a lack of honesty. It's, it's hard to, to be anti-London in the same way that it's you can be anti-Washington. It's not as maybe because America has a history of rebellion and uh, independence, whereas we get us to the next topic. Britain has its royal family and a, a culture of deference and history of continuity. But you can't be anti-London the same way and at the same time be English, or can you? Well, London is huge um, in comparison relative to the rest of the UK, whereas Washington is a pinprick compared to the United States. If Washington disappeared tomorrow, most Americans wouldn't notice. Um, whereas if London disappeared, I think we all would. Although London is no, the, is no longer the great big industrial centre. People forget London used to have industry. Um, it no longer does, but it has an enormous population. There's a bit of industry, but not much. As for what use was independence put to? Was there a massive deregulation? Did we? Was there a bonfire of controls like Churchill in 1951? No, there wasn't. Partly because the prime minister directly afterwards, Theresa May, didn't believe in independence. She never had done. She'd campaigned against it. Uh, Mr. Johnson, Alexander Boris Johnson, was massively distracted by COVID, which is another subject. So that opportunity was lost. Liz Truss was in for five minutes before the Bank of England removed her. And yes, I just did say that and would stand by it. And now we have Mr. Sunak, of course, he's got an election coming. So everything is seen through that prism of how is it going to affect the election? So... That's the, the history of since 2016. As for foreign policy, there's some continuity. Our clashes with the Houthis are not about who's in power in Yemen, which is, would be an imperial question. It's leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. While they continue to attack the high seas ships on the high seas, we will continue to object to that. 
But I don't think anyone in Britain is particularly concerned with what goes on inside Yemen. Mm. Whereas if you're talking about even 60 years ago, there were British troops in southern Yemen, Mad Mike Mitch and so on, trying to run the place, even though London was actually saying, you're out of date even then. Um, so I think we've moved on. We don't want to run these places anymore. We just want them to leave us alone. But that includes ships on the high seas. I was just um, talking to a friend who's uh, got a roots in Northern Ireland, and I was talking about my travels around the UK. Um, and I said, well, I, I was in Belfast and Glasgow, and those felt like very British cities, and I mean British, um, not English, you know, uh, and maybe Liverpool as well. Um, I've, I've I know tried. Northern Ireland. I mean, I yeah. have friends in Northern Ireland, and you have things like banners and regimental banners, even in little towns like Kells, which is, and I mean Kells in the north, which is between Antrim and Ballymena, um, which you would not see in an English town. Um, England tends to be more low key. But of course, you have two big traditions in Northern Ireland. You have the nationalist tradition and you have the unionist tradition, which is mixed up with the religion, but only as tribal banners. No one's really concerned about theology as such. Um, so, <laughs> It goes to silly things like, how do you spell your first name? If your name is Jerry, if your name's Jerry with a J, you're almost certainly a Protestant and Unionist. If your name's Jerry with a G, you're almost certainly a Catholic and a Nationalist. And you'll live in an area which has different covered, you know, curbstones, possibly. That's not universally true. It's only parts of the, of the province that are like that. Different banners. So you have two different, but also it's quite weird because what is Irish nationalism now? The same as Scottish nationalism, Welsh nationalism, because you hear slogans like independent in Europe. Mm. To me, that's, that's against basic Aristotelian logic. You're either independent or you're not. If you're subservient to Brussels and Frankfurt, you're not independent. So I don't actually understand Scottish, Welsh and Irish nationalism because it seems to have a deep hostility to London apart from the financial centre, London politically, but be quite happy to be ruled from further away, Brussels and Frankfurt, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, That's a very good point. Can I just, because I haven't heard this question asked enough. Uh, I mean, my dad's English and he's a twin brother. And I asked my dad, where are you from? And he said, I'm English. And then his twin, identical twin brother sitting next to him is, where are you from? And he said, I'm British, you know, the British are, what, what is the identity? Because was Brexit about breaking free from Europe? Or was it about the, where is the English role in this as opposed to the British role? Because some people, I, it's not often, people say, say to be British is a sort of rainy weather word. It's a bit dull and people don't feel their hearts beat. It's a bit politically correct. It includes the Welsh and it includes ethnic minorities that can be British and so on. And it's a dutifully said, but people's hearts only begin beating when you mention the word English to the English. So it varies. Where is this? It varies. I mean, for example, Wales had a higher proportion of people voting for independence from the EU than England did. Um, Scotland and Northern Ireland, not so. Um, but in Northern Ireland, there was a special worry will it cause the troubles to come back? So I think a lot of people are British patriots. You, you see British flags, the Union flag, 
um, as opposed to the English flag, which is associated. If you see a red cross and a white background, it's almost certainly not English patriotism. That's an association football thing. You know, they, they, that flag's there for football. If you see a, a Union Jack, Union flag, that's a sign of patriotism. And it is a, a British patriotism. Because you must remember the United Kingdom is very old. And it, yes, it only included Ireland from 1801, but it included Scotland from 1707. Mm. That's, that's over 300 years ago. And if you're talking about Wales, well, you could say since the successful Welsh invasion of England in 1485, when Henry Tudor, that's a pretty Welsh name, comes with a largely Welsh army, wins the Battle of Bosworth, and, and not so many miles of me, did the English conquer the Welsh or did the Welsh conquer the English? Well, that's a very good point about all empires. You know, the, con the conquered sometimes take over the capital. I mean, they talk about the Scottish Raj in London, all the journalists and, mm. and politicians are, are, are And Scots, the empire too, they? mainly Scottish. Exactly. But just to, to our last topic before we wind down, um, did you, there was a, a coronation in Denmark and uh, very stylish to me, to, to my mind, and it's got this Australian queen now. So maybe <laughs> it's something of concern to the Australians. What do you think um, now that uh, that uh, the United Kingdom has a new king, it should adopt anything of the bicycling monarchy characteristics? Or are you happy with the royal family as it is? I've never been to Denmark, but I'm going in March, hopefully. Um, and I'm told it's a wonderful place and, and, and I wish them well. I think that the British do like the pageantry. I'm with both the burial of the late queen and the coronation of the new king, there was a wonderful um, sense of, they just love the pageantry, the music, the ceremony. So that's a large part of what the monarchy is actually for. Also, it's outside of politics. As a civil servant or a military man, you swear a loyalty to the monarch, which means that you're not so much under the elected government entirely. Um, whereas in America, Someone like Mr. Biden is both head of the government and head of state, which is a bit weird, at least to England, you know, to British eyes. Okay, we've got uh, two minutes left. Is there anything? Okay, so you're more or less happy with it, but is there anything you change about it now that uh, Charles is um, the new king? I will make a controversial statement, which might get me into trouble, but I will make it. I think that Charles, and it's very difficult. For him because he's in his 70s and i'm getting on so i know what it feels like he needs to remember that the monarch's role not the prince of wales but the monarch's role is to be strictly apolitical and so he needs to guard against these political statements whether it's on climate or whatever which he, i know it's very very difficult for anyone because that's what he's believed all his life but in this new role he needs to follow what his mother did and stay out of politics. That's a controversial statement. I apologize if it offends anyone, but that, that is my belief. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that. Our, our next guest is from South Africa, and he's actually going to talk about something that's very close to uh, Charles when he was Prince of Wales's heart, which is environmental issues, or more specifically, uh, access to water. Um, South Africa has had huge water shortages, um, which wasn't the case uh, 30 years ago, uh, but uh, 
uh, Anthony Turton has worked all over South Africa and uh, Southern Africa, I should say, and, and the rest of the continent. And I think that um, we focus a lot of, about oil and access to lithium, and, and but not enough about water, which is one of the basic stuff of life. So after the break, this is TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. So this week we find out that the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in the hospital in intensive care for days and days without anybody knowing, not even the President of the United States, which leads to this very good question. Why should we believe anything that this administration tells us about anything ever again? I think we all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about uh, the um, the challenge to, to, to credibility by what by what has transpired here and by what and by uh, uh, how, how great answer, right? Here's another good question. If the administration is going to go to such great lengths to keep secrets about the defense secretary's health, how can anybody be certain? that the administration would not go to the same lengths to keep secret problems with President Biden's health in the future. I won't bore you with the answer to that one. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like, I don't remember what I did last week, but like, I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working, so I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hello. Anthony Turton, you're with us from South Africa, and you're going to talk to us about uh, water provision for a population of the world that's coming close to uh, eight. I think they've reached eight billion. Uh, many of these people live in hot countries, and they demand higher and higher standards of living. And of course, the global media ensures that uh, things like famine and and, and lack of uh, water provision reaches a global audience very quickly. Um, You've, you're living in a South Africa that's seen its uh, infrastructure substantially decline since uh, 19, the early 1990s. Um, the new government hasn't built any dams, and um, there are uh, lots of problems with sewage. Uh, you, you can tell us about that. And it's uh, experienced quite a lot of immigration from poorer African countries. So I think the population has risen from, what is it, 35 million to 60 million, and it's growing by one million a year, which puts enormous pressure on water resources, water resources which haven't been tended to. And you've studied this very closely. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, the problems and then the solutions? Uh, what are the sewage and water problems in South Africa and the rest of Africa that need atten urgent attention? 
Good afternoon to you and the listeners. Uh, great pleasure to talk to an Australian audience uh, today. Um, yeah, look, I thought that uh, it might be interesting to anchor this thing uh, in an uh, Australian perspective. Um, I've served in my time, in my professional time, as a Deputy Governor of the World Water Council, and that has given me a, a pretty much of an international um, a, a sort of scan or view of the, of the global water sector. So, yes, I'm glad you talk about the global problems, but I think it would be beneficial to maybe just bring in at least uh, some of the lessons learned from the Australian experience or to at least uh, try and sort of categorize how the, how the Australians do it compared to the rest of the world. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a well-known fact that global populations are growing rapidly, and it's also a well-known fact that populations tend to settle in areas that are lowland areas where you can develop. And of course, that's also the area where, where, where water flows. And of course, it's generally your higher quality land, uh, you know, that can be irrigated and what have you. So, so this is a global phenomenon. Uh, it's, uh, it's, no, it's no different in, in from one country to the next, although each country obviously has its own, its own nuance. So what we've seen in, uh, in South Africa, uh, just to give a comparison of South Africa and Australia, both of them have had similar... Uh, similar evolutionary roots in the sense that they're both British Commonwealth entities, so they've got that commonality between them. But then there's a major difference between the two as well, and we can also go into that if we have time to do it. And uh, you know, it comes down to the fact that what, what we're seeing playing out in front of us now with a lot of empirical evidence is the importance of visionary leadership, the importance of stable institutions, the importance of... Uh, of water utility corporations that have strong balance sheets and therefore able to raise uh, capital in their own right, rather than to be constantly funded by the taxpayer. And um, uh, uh, what I also find very interesting, particularly uh, well illustrated in the Australian case, is the fact that uh, we can talk about centralized management versus decentralized management. And a lot of uh, countries in the world, particularly in Africa, for example, have gone for the centralized model. Whereas Australia is the exact opposite, it's highly decentralized. And um, it's very interesting to contrast those two because each of them has shown, has shown us uh, some kind of benefits and, uh, and cost to these things. So, so that's by, now by way of introduction. I'll, I'll gladly be guided by you unless you want to give me a bit more of a free reign. No, no, carry on talking. Uh, why has the centralized model failed? And give us a concrete example of a country where that was tried. Yes, I think, okay, so uh, let's just take a comparative example now between South Africa and Australia. Um, I have quite a bit of, uh, uh, of exposure to Australia. I've, you know, I've had direct exposure to at least three of the different water corporations in Australia uh, in a wide geographic distribution. So I've, uh, I've got some insight into, into how they think and how they function. Um, but um, so in South Africa, the, uh, the, the decision was made when we became a democracy that uh, the water planning would be highly centralised highly, highly, highly centralized, but it would also be democratized. So the idea of a, of a highly centralized uh, control over water uh, with this wonderful idea of, you know, the people shall govern and therefore, therefore ordinary citizens would have a direct say in what happens with their water. This was all embraced in, in, uh, in the National Water Act published in 1998. And this became regarded globally as some really, really uh, progressive legislation. Now, Australia doesn't have any of that. Australia is a federal, is a federal structure and uh, it doesn't have a national, a central national uh, water policy or strategy. And um, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the South Africans viewed that uh, with, with some disdain, rather. But what we've seen over time is that the, the decentralized model that Australia has adopted is far more robust uh, for the simple reason that it is it is allowed uh, the different states and the different municipalities to, to, to find their own solutions to their highly unique localized problems. And while it's looked at at, uh, at, uh, at least taking public uh, public comments on board and it's highly sensitive in Australia, they're highly sensitive to public uh, perceptions about water. I can speak a little bit about that if you want in exact examples, but but they they are highly sensitive to that. Uh, whereas in South Africa, they paid lip service to you know to 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 democratizing the resource. And what I've what I find really fascinating in Australia is that uh, you've got over thirty water utilities now. Some are owned by the state, some are owned by uh, by by municipalities, and in general, they are all converging around a sort of a cluster of solutions. And they've done so independently of one another, and I think right. that is the strength that uh, that by 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 decentralising you open up a wide range of of options, and 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 each of those options are looked at from an engineering perspective, from an economic perspective, from a social acceptability perspective, and then ultimately over time these things are iterated around, and you start converging on these solutions. So in the case of Australia, you get highly nuanced solutions that are very appropriate for their localised or regional settings, as opposed to South Africa where they try and uh, 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 use the sort of one-size-fits-all kind of approach. And we see that no, no, uh, uh, very, very well illustrated in the fact that all water in South Africa is exactly the same price wherever you are, and, uh, uh, and all water is uh, provided to one specific water quality, high, uh, a very high standard of water quality, but it makes no sense to flush your toilet, for example, you know, with water that uh, that could have been recovered from from from, from waste, uh, why flush your toilet uh, or, or or use uh, uh, drinking water in your industrial processes when you don't have to? Now in Australia, you you know that's the exact opposite. So so that's some of the comparisons that we can sort of tease out in this conversation. So the South African is they don't there's no price sensitivity uh, to to modify behaviour. Basically, it's a kind of Everything goes. You can spend as much. You can waste as much water as you want because it's the same price. It doesn't pay heed to the local provision of water. Yes, it's uh, it's become a highly socialist uh, society. Mm. Highly, uh, one can even even argue a communist state. You know, the, the communist party plays a, a very very big role in the overall power structure of the of the uh, country. So, for example, not only can you not uh, can you not charge for water, but water is regarded as a basic human right, and therefore you get free water. There's a certain, in fact, there's a significant quantity of free water in South Africa. So there's absolutely no incentives uh, to uh, to use less water. And we saw this playing out uh, when there was once again a parallel problem playing out in, in Australia uh, with a millennial drought, for example. And then in South Africa, we had a, we had a, in, in 2018, about the, uh, thereabout, we had this whole thing of day zero playing out in Cape Town. And of course, you know, both of those problems, uh, uh, Melbourne and Cape Town, are almost identical. You can uh, you can uh, 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 compare them you know, apples to apples, where they've got similar climatic conditions and similar population size, and you know, both in winter rainfall areas, etc. And there was a big uh, internal debate in South Africa about whether the Australians had made a mistake to do, in doing what they did to you know to open up desalination plants and and what have you. And ultimately, if you compare the two, uh, you know, what what has happened is that. Uh, during day zero, there was no way to incentivize uh, a good behavior 
because the price structure of water was so 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 inappropriate and it was completely uh, you know uh, there's there's no incentive for example to get a hotel like with maybe a thousand guests in the hotel to start recovering their the water from the from from the showers and recycling that onto for example you know, the lawns in the, in the garden uh, there was no incentive from a commercial perspective for that which of course in australia is completely different now so i think these are two very very interesting comparative sample examples are you know with with sort of lots of commonalities and lots of differences as well so one could really learn many many lessons out of that uh, out of that comparison why haven't the south africans uh, government built any more or private industry built any dams in the last 30 35 years even though the population has nearly doubled yes so uh, the the dam building era in south africa really peaked out in the 1970s and it's sort of taping off in the 1980s and uh, the, the current government uh, is, is criticized for not building new dams but from a hydrological perspective the simple reality is that there's there's no more yield in the rivers that you could chase. Uh, all the good dam sites have been taken, and it's not only the availability of dam sites; it's also the availability of yield. And now this, of course, is mirrored once again in Australia, because Australia uh, is one of the driest continents. It's uh, uh, you know on the planet, uh, one of the driest, certainly inhabited uh, continents on 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 the planet. On the planet. And uh, uh, They've also impacted in Australia by things like climate change and, and stuff like that. You know, Perth, for example, has had a diminishing yield. All comes down to yield. Yield is the, is the amount of water that you can get out of a system, taking into consideration the variability between between floods and droughts. So you know, periods of flood, high flow, compared to to, to periods of low flow. Uh, so so you've got to have a balance between those because that's what gives you the yield. And uh, you know, now, once again, the comparative examples are important because both countries have gone the big dam route. And in fact, what I find very fascinating is that Australia has probably got twice as much dam storage at national level than South Africa has. So there's double the amount of volume in the dams in Australia. So the, the Aussies are pretty, pretty big at, you know, at storing water in that way as well. Um, but uh, you know, the South Africans, they've caught what they can of the yield, but they can't really capture anything more. And now we get into another interesting part of the conversation because if we start considering climate change as a factor, now we, now we get into a really, really interesting debate because at technical level, if you build a dam, what, what the dam always does is it loses water to evaporation, particularly if you have an arid environment. And I'll give, it, I'll give an example. Uh, in the case of, uh, of South Africa, the most uh, uh, developed part of the economy is around the city of Johannesburg. Uh, that, that the whole province around Johannesburg sustains about 60% of the, of the, of the uh, economy and about 40% of the total population live in that one geography. And, uh, and that, that gets its water through a very complex system, but, uh, but central to the system is a large dam called Val Dam. Now, Val Dam loses more water to evaporation then flows in under natural conditions for 11 months of the year. So in other words, from an engineering design uh, and policy perspective, the loss of water to evaporation is really a major issue when you're talking about climate change into the future. Now, let's, so let's, let's just accept that as a point of departure, and then let's anchor that now into an Australian context. And this is where it becomes truly, truly fascinating. And this is where, where the Aussies really come out actually as world leaders. So if our largest portion of, 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 of water lost uh, at global level uh, is in fact to evaporation, to you know, natural processes of large dams, then arguably the future of large dams uh, at a global level is coming to an end. 
So therefore, the next question now is, how do you store large volumes of water uh, for, you know, for, uh, to get you through from drought to, drought to, to periods of, uh, of abundance? How do you store that water in a way that you don't lose it to evaporation? And this, I think, is where Australia is, is miles ahead of almost anywhere. I, I don't know of any other country that, uh, that is as far advanced as Australia in what is known as, as aquifer recharge and recovery. So basically, water is diverted through a series of very clever policies, all of which are developed at local level, as I say. They're not driven by national, by national directive. So they've all evolved on their own. Um, but, but you find that there are multiple ways that water is captured either at the end of a, of a, of a, of a gutter pipe, you know, uh, at a, sorry, a residential home, where it ends up in a soak well and it goes down into an aquifer. Or if it runs off into a street, then, then streets... Uh, Street drains all end up in a great big soak pit on the corner of some uh, some uh, block, you know, in a residential um, setting, and and it's like inverted pyramid, and then that uh, uh, discharges water into the aquifer, and you see that all over the show, you know, in in different forms in different parts of the country, and of course that's gone to another to another level now. This is where I think once again Australia is leading the the pack in in the water in in the recovery of water from waste, particularly from sewage. It's uh, uh, now we get a, con a combination of the fact that 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 the the water the water recovered from sewage is a tech is technically quite a complex uh, problem, but it's a very soluble problem. So there are multiple solutions for that problem, but there's the social acceptability of of recycling sewage. And this, if you compare now Australia to Singapore, for example, in Singapore it's a smaller little it's a city state, it's a tiny little place. And in Singapore, they take uh, water recovered from waste and they, and they take it directly into the drinking water tap. So that's direct reuse of, 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 of recovered water. But in Australia, they don't do that. What they do is they recover significant, I mean, large quantities of water. Uh, in, in Adelaide, there's something about 20 or 30% of, of its sewage is, is recovered in this way. And uh, it, it's all ultimately treated to a very high standard. But then instead of, of putting it into the drinking water stream, it goes into groundwater recharge. So that groundwater recharge, you know, you're banking water for the future. And, 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 and I mean, this, in my professional opinion, this is probably one of the smartest set of policy decisions that I've seen. And once again, you know, the same argument that I'm putting forward is that those policy decisions have come up in different areas in Australia, uh, each independently driven and not, not sort of, you know, not in a command and control way by a central government. And that's what makes those solutions so robust, because because the answer to each problem has ultimately converged around a, sim a similar set of uh, of technologies, but uh, but but through different alternative pathways. So you you can Anthony, be pretty sure that those are, are solid solutions. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating. It shows you that any topic is interesting if you've got somebody knowledgeable and who can explain the problems, like an engineering issue. Um, I really enjoyed that, and I think that. Um, I think we didn't have time, but maybe we'll take another time when you, you're engaged in the sewage issue as well. I was uh, down in South Africa and uh, one of the photos I took, the documentary I was working on, is how this street sign pointing to Sharpville, which is the most famous place in the South African law where uh, dozens of protesters were gunned down. And this street sign or road sign was surrounded by piles of sewage because a former nature reserve has been turned into sort of sewage overflow flow place where the sewage equipment is is non, not working and where uh, it looks like something from uh, you know the Tarkovsky film Stalker where, where sort of 
mangy dogs are walking, uh, running around, and people are scavenging around in the rubbish. And then I saw a photo of it two years earlier, and it was a beautiful nature reserve. But um, Anthony Turton, thank you very much for this extremely interesting talk. And, uh,